Hello, I'm Pommy Harmer and you're listening to the fourth podcast in the series Follow the Sun. I'm with Marian Mente who wrote the book which presents the sequence of the Zodiac as a story. Later on in the podcast we'll hear Marian reading this chapter where Aries ventures into the world of Cancer the Crab. Before that I'll be chatting to Marian about the characteristics of Cancer and afterwards she'll tell me about the moon, about square aspects in a chart and about the differences between cardinal fixed and mutable signs so stay tuned to the end. Hello Marian, welcome back. Hello Pommy, nice to see you. We've arrived at Chapter 4, Cancer's Home. So can we start with you telling us briefly about the qualities of cancer and why we find her on an island in a lake? (laughs) Yes, of course. Well, cancer, whose symbol is a crab, is ruled by the moon, which has associations with instincts, intuition, the memory, dreams and the subconscious. The energy of the moon and cancer is yin, and cancer's element is water, As you say, it's the fourth sign. It begins mid-June to mid-July and it is a cardinal sign. It is associated with protecting and nurturing that which is born, established and recognised. So you see how these things grow. And it is also with the family and the mother figure. It's physically associated with the breasts and the stomach. And when used positively, the spirit of cancer energy is sensitive reflective, intuitive, imaginative, it's artistic, it's tenacious and shrewd. When used negatively, it can be clinging, moody, morbid and in extremes too self-protective. In the story, I've set cancer on an island in a lake to best show this responsiveness and sensitivity uh, to the moon with the swelling of the lake's waters at the time of the full moon and her fluctuation of moods. This nurturing instinct encourages the appreciation and collecting of things like art and artefacts, for instance, and a shrewd eye for what's worth keeping and collecting. Uh, The stork has associations with the bringing of babies and Cancer's cave, well, it's womb-like, isn't it? You know, she has a nurturing motherliness, sort of spoon-feeding the semi-conscious Aries, counselling him on his way forward. In one's chart, the moon frequently represents the mother figure and refers to conditions of early childhood. It also has to do with the memories, the dreams and intuition, the subconscious as opposed to the consciousness of the sun. All right, so let's just bring ourselves up to date with what happened so far. In the first chapter, we find Ares trapped in a gloomy crater, knowing only his name and his ambition to go forward. The event of an earthquake enabled him to climb the towering walls of the crater and view the sun setting on the distant horizon. Determined to follow the sun, his first encounter was with Taurus. In Taurus' realm, he gained a greater appreciation of his senses and also learned that the birds are messengers across the realms. But there's been a disruption in the birds' reports of late and Taurus urged Ares to investigate why this might be as he travels. On reaching the forests of the Gemini, Ares' perceptions expand as the twins fuel his curiosity about the wider world, telling him of the collective realms, and inform him about a wicked shrike who was responsible for the chaos with the bird messages. They believed the shrike had perished in the same storm that had set Ares free, at which time the twins also came into possession of a mysterious black pearl. 
Believing the Shrike had stolen the pearl from their neighbour, Cancer, they now devise a clever plan for an unwitting Ares to deliver it back to the crab as a surprise. Finders, Keepers The moon reached its zenith as the stork flew over the lip of a wide valley. A vast oval lake shimmered like liquid silver in the moonlight and the lush slopes of the valley sank into its waters. The only visible shore was a pale ribbon of sand around a crescent-shaped island in the middle of the lake. He'd never seen such an expanse of water, only brooks and streams on his journey so far. As they flew over the little island, a heady scent of jasmine wafted on the warm night air, and in the bright moonlight he could clearly see the fringe of palms and succulent plants nestling around the isle's rocky centre. He thought it might be interesting to spend a day there, but recalling the splendour of the peaks promptly abandoned the idea. He attempted to communicate with the stork, asking that she ignore the Gemini's instructions about landing him on the island, saying... Fly me over Cancer's realm and drop me on the other side, as close to the mountains as possible. Or words to that effect. The bird registered an understanding of his request, filling him with pride at his newfound skills in communication. The stork had flown with smooth grace, so he rightly felt alarmed when she suddenly swooped low. Without warning, she let go of the vine and to his horror, he was plunging towards the water. Stupid great bird, he shouted rudely as the stork winged away. She believed she'd done exactly as he had asked, which was to fly him over the island and drop him not too far from the rocks, which is contrary to her explicit instructions from the Gemini, which were to deliver him directly into Cancer's cave. Ares had needed more practice with the language, but that didn't occur to him. He believed his dousing was the stork's fault and her lack of understanding, obviously. The rocky centre on the island housed a large, oval-shaped cavern, its rugged walls rounding into the ceiling. At the far end of the cave was a large circular pool contained in a bed of sparkling crystal. This was fed by a spring welling from deep in the earth. At the phase of the full moon, the water swelled, overflowing the crystal rim and washing the sandy floor of the cave. In the rocky roof above the pool was a wide chimney-like opening through which light filtered down. Moonlight spilled through this natural window and the full moon's image was reflected on the crystal water. It was down this chimney that the Gemini had asked Stork to drop Ares, thus giving Cancer the surprise of her life. Imps! Cancer adored the night of the full moon. Its radiance rippled around the cavern, illuminating her collection of treasures which filled every nook and cranny. The polished gems and stones glistened, and the assortment of driftwood and shells cast shadows, creating beautiful, mysterious images on the walls. She loved to recline by the side of her pool and gaze at the image of the moon, now shining like a platinum disc on the water's surface. Knowing the ethereal light in her cave would dim as the moon waned, her eyes brimmed with tears and she sighed softly. Oh, how I wish this night would last forever. However, 
She also knew that the foraging was especially good after the full moon had swelled the waters of her lake, and this cheered her a little. An avid collector of curiosities, she had a discerning eye for what was worth keeping. Drying her tears, she gazed in affectionate wonder at the magic of the moon's reflection. At that same moment, a strange shadow flitted across its image on the water. Alarmed, she scurried outside to see what was happening and spotted Stork passing over her island before swooping low to drop a bundle into the lake. Hurrying to the water's edge, she quickly submerged, then waited for the ripples to subside before investigating further. This was always her approach, for she wanted to be sure of the catch before advancing. Her vision was clear under the moonlit water, and she was intrigued to watch as a strange creature attempted to struggle ashore. Although she trusted that her friend the stork would bring her no harm, because the bird had flown from the direction of Gemini's realm, Cantor's suspicions were aroused. Some jokey trickery might be afoot from her merrily mischievous neighbours. The stork is a generous bird, but not always as discerning as she ought to be. She brooded, feeling crabby about the situation. Ares hated the water and was quite out of his element. He tried to swim but had become hampered by the vines which had loosened in flight and now straggled his feet. Cautiously sidestepping towards him, Cancer waited until the loose end of the vines drifted within her reach, then taking hold with her strong pincers, she pulled forcefully, dragging him under the surface and firmly into her grasp. Deftly wrapping a length of vine around his horns, neck and forelegs, she twisted it into a knot. Hog-tied, he was powerless as he was dragged choking and coughing onto the sandy beach. When his head had been submerged by the water, he had felt stabbing flashes of light and the pain of his recent head wound had returned twofold. Come to plunder my lake under the brighty moon, have you, thief in the night? She accused scornfully. He was enraged by such treatment and accusations, but feeling weak and winded from near drowning, had difficulty breathing in the crab's vice-like grip. I'm no thief, he spluttered. That <coughs> that stupid bird dumped me here. Now let go. <coughs> I'm choking. She released her grip only slightly in case he tried to escape before she'd finished her inquiries. Who are you? He didn't look at all familiar, but that he did not resemble the twins went a little in his favour at this moment. I'm Ares, he gasped. <coughs> Survivor of earthquakes, explorer and investigator, conqueror of the skies, on my way to the peaks. Oh, oh let me breathe. He wanted to butt the crab into orbit, but dizziness overwhelmed him and he passed out. Seeming so helpless softened Cancer's mood, and she now took pity on his bedraggled form. Investigator? On his way to the peaks? She considered his reply. Maybe he has business with the collective, she pondered, remembering a snippet of news she'd recently heard concerning some kind of traveller, but the message of being garbled didn't quite make sense. However, no words could have prepared her for this. Ares, hmm, she vaguely knew of the realm, the name certainly, survivor of earthquakes. She wanted to know more. 
Helping him into her cave, she made him a warm, dry bed from palm leaves. As he began to regain consciousness, she brought him a bowl of nourishing fish stew. This aromatic brew didn't appeal to him, but he felt too weak to protest as she repeatedly fed spoonfuls into his mouth. However, it helped to revive him, and though still feeling groggy, he gazed in wonder at his surroundings. Was he dreaming? The moonlit cavern full of curious objects was the most fascinating and beautiful thing he had ever seen. Watching Cancer as she gently fussed about him, he thought she was oddly curious too. Minutes ago she'd taken him for a thief and almost drowned him, yet now his well-being was her uppermost concern. Peeping shyly at him were large soft eyes set in a gently rounded face. Her complexion was pale, almost luminous, and curling wisps of fine fair hair framed her dainty features. Her formidable pincers seemed incongruous to her gentle visage and kind demeanour. Do you feel a little better? Her tone was sympathetic and caring. No, thanks to you, I've got a blasted headache, he answered curtly, feeling out of sorts and thinking the Gemini's teasing of her was more than justified. Let me see if you've hurt yourself, she said graciously, smoothing back the fringe of curls on his forehead, trying not to be offended by his rudeness. After all, she reflected, perhaps she had been a little sharp with him on his arrival. Oh, why, yes, there's a huge lump here. She was thinking that this may be the cause of his bad temper. He winced as she touched the compress and told her he had butted a tree flat, he couldn't admit to losing a fight, and that the Gemini had placed the compress there. Cancer replied that it was high time to remove this mud pat and replace it with a proper clean dressing. I shouldn't be surprised if the wound has become infected, she said tartly, at this moment having a poor opinion of the twins as nursemaids. As she gently worked on freeing the compress, which seemed stuck fast, she spared him no details about why she felt disquieted by her neighbours. As she talked, her mood darkened and she became quite piqued towards those double trouble, nosy, nosy, naughty nippers. They play so many pranks on me. Her eyes moistened, welling with tears as she complained that they'd made off with bundles of bananas on their last visit. And they're always hiding things I fish out of the lake. It can be very, very upsetting. She began to cry. Oh, they're only teasing you for fun, he explained quickly, alarmed by her tears and wanting them to stop. He told her that the twins like to find clever hiding places for her treasures, knowing she'll be doubly pleased when she finds them again. It's just a little hide-and-seek game, that's all. They don't really mean to upset you. It's simply that they like to play. They are really very, very fond of you. They told me so. As he was speaking, she had managed to loosen the compress, prizing it away in one piece. Oh, the pain has gone. His relief was audible. Yes, the wound seems quite healed, she answered absently, absorbed by the cake of mud in her claw. What he'd been saying about the twins prompted her impulse to squeeze the compress, causing it to crumble, and blowing away the dust, her eyes opened wide at what remained in her grip. <gasps> My goodness me, what have we here? She held up the object for him to see. It was a beautiful, lustrous, 
black pearl. Would you trade this gem for another? She asked tentatively, eyeing him from under her lashes. Trade? He wasn't quite sure what she meant. Exchange it for something of similar beauty and value. Well, I... uh, Perhaps a necklace of gems and shells, she urged. I've just finished making one, most unusual and attractive. I'm sure you'll like it. She loved to bargain, but was prepared to give generously for this pearl. But it's not mine to trade, he said honestly. The Gemini must have placed it in the compress. Oh, but of course, stupid me, he exclaimed happily. They insisted I ask you to check my wound. They wanted you to find it, just like always. It's yours, a gift from them, and hidden in a very clever place indeed. Oh, my, she caught her breath. It had to be true. Oh, it's truly wonderful. Oh, those thoughtful, clever twins. It's worth all the bananas under the sun. Delighted and wreathed in smiles, her mood was now buoyant. I absolutely must invite them to tea and they can tell me all about it. She rinsed the pearl in her pool. Underwater, its luster glowed more luminous, its beauty far surpassing the gems in her collection. She had only dreamed of finding such a prize. Oh, it's so rare, so precious. Oh, I could weep with happiness, she drooled. Oh, please, not again, he pleaded, already exhausted by her changing emotions. She looked tenderly at him, sensing his difficulty, his innate shyness of sentimental feelings. I'm so happy, but I promise not to cry, she sniffled, fighting back the tears. Her cave grew dim with the setting of the moon, and though wishing to question Ares more about himself and his quest, understanding that he was still out of sorts from his dip in the lake and doubtless feeling tired, she considerately bid him good night. Reclining by her pool, Cancer held the gem under what moonlight remained, mesmerised by the lovely hues of its lustre as she drifted into sleep, clutching the pearl to her breast. She began to dream of an ocean she'd never seen, of a world beneath the rolling surf where coral reefs teemed with plants and tiny creatures unknown to her yet strangely familiar. At first she played amongst the sea anemones, the moon shining brightly above, but then the pearl in her grasp began pulling her down into the fathomless depths of the ocean. Engulfed in a whirlpool, she tried to release it, to let it drop, but it remained anchored in her claw, spinning her round and round, drawing her down and down, sucking her into the darkest depths where sunlight or moonlight could never penetrate, nor cries for help ever be heard. Wake up! Wake up! He shook her back to consciousness. You were screaming in your sleep. She regarded her familiar surroundings. Sunlight now streamed into the cave and she began to feel safe again, but tells only that she dreamt of drowning. She wondered if the Gemini knew of the pearl's properties. Did Ares know? Was it a trick, a joke after all? She couldn't be sure. Feeling morose, She uncharacteristically tended her treasures rather than her visitors' needs. He too felt the need to be alone, but quite within character, wondered how soon he could get onwards to the peaks.
By late afternoon, he'd explored the entire island. He liked the tropical scenery of tall palms, voluptuous exotic flowers and succulent fruits. But the hot sun made him drowsy. Again out of sorts, he lay under the shady palms and looked out over the lake. He could just discern shapes of greenery on the far side. Unknown to him, these were the mangroves behind which lay the dangerous swamps of no man's land. Assessing the distance over the water, a wave of frustration engulfed him. Oh, damn valleys! He felt marooned. It was too far to contemplate swimming, and he had decided that he loathed water anyway. Searching for an alternative, he scanned the skies for the stalk, but not a cloud marred the deep summer blue. He tried calling for the stalk in one of the tongues he'd heard the Gemini use, but drew only the amorous responses from a large bird of paradise who thought he wanted to dance. There was nothing left for it but to beat a hasty retreat to the cave, the colourful bird in hot pursuit. For cancer, she was not at home. He strolled over to the crystal pool, now bathed in early evening sunlight. The water looked so inviting that he fought his reservations about getting wet and plunged in. Despite the heat of the day, the spring's waters felt deliciously cool. As soon as he'd immersed, he began to relax. His stresses about being marooned melted away and, most unusually, he found himself looking back, pleasantly reflecting on his experiences so far dreamily tracking back through the forests, reminiscing about the informative, playful adventures he'd had with the Gemini, back through the flower-filled meadows of Taurus, recalling his first tastes of honey and cream, back to the broken summit of Great Tor. At this point, his mood changed. Against his will, recollections of the earthquake and of the vision beyond the collapsed hills began to swamp his mind, all was misty and melancholy as it had been then, and the eerie, haunted feelings now returned to trouble him. Discerning these feelings, he briskly climbed from the water and ran outside to shake his fleece dry, but he collided with Cancer as she was approaching the entrance. She was returning home from a visit to her sisters in another part of the lake, and, fortunately, had managed to hang on to her laden basket despite the collision. Oh, where are you going in such a hurry? she asked. Surprised, but friendly. Going? I'm going nowhere. I'm stuck here, damn it, he cursed. She was taken aback by his attack, but before she could respond, he followed with, More to the point, where have you been? Amongst other places, I have been gathering food for our supper, she replied quietly, and moved quickly past him, upset by his aggressive tone, verging on anger herself. With a sigh of exasperation, he walked to the water's edge, kicking at a few pebbles along the shore. He hadn't meant to upset her, but he felt so touchy on this island. Oh, keep out of her way for a while, he told himself. She'll soon get over it, forget about it. Being of a volatile temperament, he was naturally able to do that, but would soon come to learn that Cancer's nature was altogether different and at odds with his own. She'd had it in mind to confide more about her dream and the visit to her family, also to ask further about his past and his quest. 
She hoped to establish whether Gemini had found the pearl. The disturbing dream caused her deep concern and she was unsure what to do about it. Oh, such a dreadful nightmare warns me not to keep it, she had wailed to her sisters. They fully understood the anguish of her dilemma because to let go of something she wanted to cherish was in conflict with Cancer's nurturing instincts. After discussions, it was agreed that they should keep the gem to see if anything similar might occur in their dreams too. So she left the pearl in her family's safekeeping and promised to come by again the next morning. Meanwhile, she must return home to look after her unexpected guest. When Ares eventually returned to the cave, supper was laid. But he had been wrong about Cancer's forgetting his earlier rudeness. Being extremely sensitive, she didn't take slights lightly, and while she dutifully joined him in eating, she remained in her shell, refraining from conversation. She was of a strong and innovative character as he, and she was not about to tolerate his insolence. Her silence made him feel quite awkward, I, uh, I, uh, I didn't mean to be rude earlier, he mumbled, clearing his throat. It's just that I understand how you might feel, she put in sharply, saving them both the embarrassment of him explaining his frustration. A simple sorry will do. Remember, I didn't invite you here. Uh, no, of course, right, came his stilted response. The strained silence continued until supper was finished. Appreciating that Ares had made as much of an apology as he was able, she gave a sigh of resignation. In a few days, the waters of the lake will subside and reveal a sandbank, a causeway to the mangroves on the far side, she informed him. You will be able to wade across easily and quickly, since you're eager to get away. It's not that I want to get away so much as I want to get onwards, he answered, feeling a little contrite. He was relieved she understood him, also to hear about the causeway, but felt a little sheepish in being so transparent. Being aware of the feelings of others was not one of Aerie's strengths, and he silently admired Cancer's gift of insight, even though he couldn't form the words to say so. Oh, for just some of the Gemini's eloquence, he thought. If only I could make her laugh. After clearing away the supper dishes, Cancer told him she was going fishing in the lake and would return in a few days' time. She had left ample provisions of food and he should be quite comfortable until her return. He thanked her, assuring that he was quite happy to fend for himself and hopes that she has a successful trip. He was preoccupied with thoughts of the emerging causeway. Next morning, she duly called on her sisters to discover that they too had had the same nightmares. Oh, since he brought the pearl, let him take it away, they advised. On hearing her reports about Ares' rudeness, they felt he had the same upsetting effect on her as the gem. She agreed that he did make her feel more emotional, which in turn increased her sensitivity and moodiness. She stayed with them for a few days, relaxing in the comfort of their homely companionship, brightening her spirits by making several very successful foraging trips. She settled her mind that the Gemini were truly trying to please her and that their gift was not a trick, but something that they'd found that was more mysterious than they had known. 
She returned home with a bounty of treasures, feeling rested and much better. Ares too was in a friendlier mood since the lake was visibly receding. He noticed that Cancer seemed more relaxed, less sensitive and changeable than his first impression of her. This was invariably the case with the crab once the moon had begun to wane. Her emotions were less on the surface. Over dinner she encouraged him to relate his experiences so far. She listened attentively and waited for him to finish speaking before making comment. He liked that. No storm or earthquake has happened here, she said, adding, you're the strangest happening on my shores. <laughs> but from all you say, I admire the way Taurus appreciates and protects his own. He seems much like myself in that regard. When the Gemini speak of him, it's to praise his singing. Quite wonderful, they say. Mm, yes, she mused, and moving to a collection of treasures, selected a beautiful crystal, admiring the rainbows in its reflecting lights. I will send him this gift to say hello. What do you think? Oh, do what you like, he snapped. But how will you get it? I'm not turning back. Oh, but of course not. I wouldn't dream of asking you, she said tactfully, sensing her praise of Taurus had pricked his vanity and was causing him to feel defensive. It would be too painful for you to return to your lost realm. A stork will do it. She owes me a favour. Lost realm, he protested. You mean that pit I escaped from? You called that a realm? There was nothing there except me and damn fog. I'm alone and always have been. I don't need a realm. I'm an explorer and an adventurer. A realm would only keep me in one place. What use is that to me? He was getting worked up again. Oh, dearie me, she thought, though she smiled, nodding gently in assent to his words. I fear he is protesting too much. I've a strong inkling there's much more about him. She was aware there existed a realm of Ares to the east and that it was known as the one alone, but knew little about the conditions there. However, rather than provoke him further, she wisely steered the conversation towards his quest. You said you have important business with the collective. Tell me about that. He calmed a little, much preferring to talk about his plans than his past. However, he was caught on his back foot at this and blustered. Well, uh, <coughs> I mean, um, well, I have, uh, I admit, it's, it's not business as such. I mean, um, well, uh, the collective's not expecting me or anything, but um, what does the collective do anyway? He thought that to ask the questions might serve him better at this point. She smiled at his naivety and answered, well, amongst other things, they gather and sort information. And you have a lot to tell them, don't you? He gave her a sidelong look. There was more to Miss Cancer than he'd grasped. Her warm demeanour relaxed his tension, and she began to advise him on his path through the marshes, warning that he must keep close to the main stream which feeds the lake. She told him that once through the marshes, he would have to cross a desert before reaching the uplands and the realm of Leo. The marshes and the desert are no man's land, where only danger rules, she warned. These regions are the lowest point of all the lands. The marshes are full of quicksand and horrible beasts, which will swallow you whole should you even for one moment let your guard down. And the desert is hazardous. Unless one knows the terrain well, 
it would be all too easy to go astray and perish from lack of water. From what Stork says about no man's land, there are menacing prowlers straying in those regions, outlaws banished from the plains who seek to disrupt Leo's rule for their own gain. The plains are a political hotbed. She looked earnestly at him, hoping he was taking what she was telling him seriously, but she couldn't be sure. On reflection... I think it would be advisable for you to wait here until Stork comes by. Let her fly you over to No Man's Land, directly to Leo. She usually visits when the moon is full and bright. As she expected, he replied that he preferred not to wait for the Stork. He was impatient, and rather than being put off by her warnings, was beginning to relish the challenges ahead. Tell me more about Leo's realm. Um, what's a political hotbed? He tried and failed to form an image of such a thing. It means that while the inhabitants of the plains wholeheartedly pay homage to Leo as sovereign and protector, there are others who contest his law and purely for selfish gain. Personally, I couldn't contend with such chaos. I feel that Leo should be applauded for keeping control of the situation. Be sure you seek him out immediately. There's no mistaking him for another... You will intuitively know he is the king, and that's how he's referred to in his realm. Because of his rivals and pretenders, you mustn't trust any prowler to give you safe passage in those regions, no matter how persuasive they might be. When it came to matters of trust, Cancer had a sixth sense about things and rarely had cause to doubt her instinct. She felt Ares would be safe if he followed her advice. Oh, have you met Leo? he asked. Oh, once I flew there with Stork. I was a guest at one of Leo's galas. I also met some of the collective realms there, but I don't often like to leave home, she answered. However, I trade much of the jewellery I make with many on the plains for different gems and metals that they provide to me, which they, in turn, have traded with those of the collective. I do quite a lot of business in those regions, though Stork usually does the fetching and carrying for me. Uh, what did you mean by, uh, I'll intuitively know that it's Leo? He was intrigued. Well, it sort of means, it means you will know without needing to ask. As I've said, many might tell you that they are Leo, but your intuition will tell you if their claims feel true. Intuition is essential when seeking the rightness of things, especially the right price. <laughs> they laughed at her allusion to trading. Cancer's spirit of enterprise impressed him greatly and he wanted to speak more with her about it and about her experience at Leo's galas. To the latter, she gave a brief but colourful description of the range of entertainments and masquerading, the elaborate costumes and jewellery worn for display at the galas, or extravaganzas, as Leo termed them. But she declined to say much more, reminding him that the hour was getting late. If you insist on leaving tomorrow rather than waiting a while for Stork, you must get an early start. He resigned to go to sleep but his mind was buzzing with images of what lay ahead. He could hardly wait for the morning. While Ares slept, Cancer worked late into the night, weaving a snug-fitting pouch for the pearl in a strong yet extremely fine twine. 
Her pincers were capable of the most delicate stitching and she deftly interwove the pouch and its ties with strands of fine curls that she discreetly clipped from his fleece. Painful though it was, she decided to heed her family's advice and send the gem on with him. Again he was to be the unwitting bearer of this mystical treasure. Without disturbing him, she gently secured the little pouch closely around his neck, ensuring all merged perfectly and all trace of its presence was concealed. A strong intuition warned her that secrecy meant safety for both the pearl and himself, though for what purpose and to what end she did not know, or yet. Satisfied with her work, she fell into a peaceful sleep for the first time since her unusual visitor and his mysterious burden had arrived. After a hearty breakfast, they walked down to the edge of the causeway. She'd kindly packed him a lunch of fish paste sandwiches, a piece of chocolate cake and two peaches, insisting he eat it all. She repeated her warnings to follow the main stream and with tears in her eyes, clasped him fondly to her breast, making him promise to let her know the outcome of his quest. Though unable to contain his excitement to be travelling on, he remembered to thank her eloquently and sincerely. Then he gambled across the causeway, unaware of the precious cargo nestling beneath his lunch pail. Watching him leave, she began to fret about his fate. She winced at the thought of the quicksands and the rigours of the desert. Wherever he was heading, he'd embarked on an arduous journey where anything might happen. On return to her cave, a wave of sadness swept over her and she wept as never before. She had wanted that pearl for her own. But it had had such a disturbing effect on her and last night, when she had tied the little pouch around his neck, she felt very sure she was doing the right thing. However, concerns for his safety were now causing doubts to beset her. Had she been too sensitive, uh, perhaps overreacted to that foreboding dream? Had she put Ares at risk to avoid further upset to herself? Should she have kept the pearl despite all? To try to console herself, she browsed a collection of treasures, selecting those gems she would craft into an elaborate breastplate she was making as a gift for Leo, a token of her respect and admiration. As she set to work, she reflected about the Gemini's part in it all, and while mulling over plans to invite them to tea, an amusing thought occurred. I'll have a word with Stork when she comes by. It's high time I gave them a surprise, and the very idea of landing on the Gemini caused her to laugh out loud. She'd last seen the twins scampering along her shore, avoiding a tweak from her pincers. <laughs> Lovable imps. No Man's Land Come evening, Ares was thoroughly disenchanted with the marshes. The heat and the rising vapours, biting insects, eerie gurgles and screeches all irritated him beyond the limits of his tolerance, which was never very high. At first, following the stream was not difficult, 
but as he trudged further into the swamps, more rivulets joined the main stream, slowing him as he waded carefully through the muddy waters, trying to avoid splashing his chest and belly. When he eventually he found a dry bank, he sat down to eat. He didn't care for the fish paste sandwiches, ungratefully tossing them towards a nearby log half-submerged in the shallow water. He was making short work of the chocolate cake when, to his horror, a pair of large jaws opened at one end of the log and snapped up the discarded food. Two bulbous eyes fixed him in their gaze and the log began to move towards him. He tore off like a shot. Trees were one thing, but he wasn't remotely tempted to confront such an alien, fearsome creature. The thick vegetation excluded the sun, while the steamy vapours condensed on the underleaves, constantly dripping and drenching his fleece. The air was sultry and heavy, and his feet sank with every step, leaving puddles in his wake. Days melted into nights, afraid to sleep, Aware of other sinister shapes slithering through the murky waters, he grabbed only short snoozes when he could trek no further. Miserable and exhausted, he grew despondent that there would be no end to these accursed marshes. More than once he'd wished he'd listened to cancer, had taken her advice and had waited for the stalk. Oh, hot-headed idiot, he scolded himself. Will I ever learn? Eventually the waters subsided, and the going became easier. Confident of making progress, he slept a little better, though still at short, irregular intervals. During the following days, the air around him seemed to lift and feel fresher. He was able to quicken his pace to a trot, stepping niftily over gnarled roots, head kept low to avoid sagging branches and drooping vines. Tiring, he was about to rest again, when the cloying vegetation fell sharply away. Without warning, he was suddenly exposed to the full glare of the noonday sun. Blinded for an instant, once his sight adapted, he found himself gazing across a sun-baked landscape of sand and rocks, stretching as far as the eye could see. After the suffocating swamp, he welcomed the open space, but the intense heat soon had him longing for respite. The cracked bed of a dried-up river snaked across the terrain, and he followed its course, hoping it might lead to a trickle of water. By the time he came upon a small, muddy waterhole, surrounded by patchy scrub, his throat felt as dry as bracken, and his back was burning. As well as the heat... His luxurious black fleece drew the unwelcome attentions of a huddle of prowlers milling around the pool's edge. They snarled as he approached, but being heavily outnumbered, he knew that to provoke a fight would prove foolish. Oh, maybe I am learning, he assured himself. Avoiding eye contact, he ignored their hostilities in the interests of slaking his thirst, but his temper was rising, and he thought how welcome it would now be to actually turn puce and scatter this rabble in surprise. Amused by the idea, he managed to drink and depart before the tension snapped. But as he made for the lengthening shadows of nearby rocks, he noticed two of their number were stalking him. On reaching the shade, he turned to take them head on. But off! My business is with Leo!' He sounded tougher than he felt. This was two against one, 
and they were seasoned predators. Oh, look no further, stranger. I am Leo. The grin was menacing, bearing a row of broken teeth. This outlaw was sporting a strange headdress of matted fur, which straggled raggedly over his face and shoulders. Oh, plain king again, eh, with your scuzzy wig? Don't believe this liar. I am Leo, growled the other. He was as bald as a coot with split ears and one eye badly scarred. Call me a liar, you one-eyed cur, was the angry response of his companion. They began to scrap with each other, but instead of smartly distancing himself, Ares' natural aggression was aroused and he plunged into the fray. Enjoying the cut and thrust, he rid himself of pent-up frustrations, ramming his horns into one, then the other, exchanging blow for blow and laying both out cold. The victory invigorated him, and confident that this sorry pair would no longer follow, he headed off across the unforgiving terrain. Nights in the desert were as icy cold as the days were blistering hot. As he trudged along the dead river trail, other outcasts crossed his path. A few were friendly enough to share their shelter at night or their shade in the day, but never their food or water, and none could be trusted not to skin his hide to trade. His intuition was getting plenty of practice, for he'd had to outwit many scavengers when asking the way to Leo. His days seemed a constant battle, and he'd fought a number of fights to stay alive. In addition to these trials, the heat and dust were making him so miserable that he began to doubt his ambition to reach the peaks. He felt as rootless as the balls of tumbleweed that rolled across the sun-baked sands. Enduring countless days and nights in no man's land, it was with small hope and little strength that he came upon the vast, grass-covered plain his inquiries had led him to head for. There was still little in the way of shade, just one or two parched trees jutting from the shimmering landscape. But in the far, far distance, he could see the purple shadows and majestic white caps of the mountains. At last he'd arrived in the realm of Leo, and the fire of ambition burned within him again. That was Marian Mente reading the fourth chapter of Follow the Sun, which was about cancer. So, Marion, in previous podcasts, you've told us all about Mars, Mercury and Venus and cancer is ruled by the moon. You've said before that the sign our sun falls in is our at-heart selves, while the moon is the principle of our needs. Can you just tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, symbolically, the sun is deemed the celestial father and the moon the cosmic mother. Leo is ruled by the sun and Cancer is ruled by the moon and they do not share their rulerships as other signs do. Because the moon is receptive and responsive, she gives out what she receives. Therefore, conditioned behaviour, mannerisms and habits of a person will be expressed in the sign the mood falls in. That's why I say needs rather than desires. Yes, I can see that. But why is Aries then at odds with Cancer initially? Is he out of his element, as you put it in the story? 
Yeah, well, very definitely. It, this is the clash of fire and water, if you like, and also the first cardinal square. And I'll come to that bit in a minute. But this is the third realm he has entered. It's a quarter of his journey, 90 degrees of the circle, and 90 degrees forms a square aspect. Squares are challenging aspects. I mean, think about square wheels. <laughs> and they reflect the need for worldly experience. I mean, it isn't possible to maintain that life should be simple or easy because the challenge to progress would be removed and there'd be little point or purpose to existence, wouldn't there? It's only when confronted with challenge do we come to utilise the potential inherent in our nature. In this chapter... Aries is not only challenged by cancer's sensitivity, but by feeling marooned on an island. He is, contrary to his at-heart self, which is pioneering, he's caused to reflect on his experiences so far, and his impetuous, headstrong self is challenged to wait for the lake to subside in order to continue. He's learning more about himself in this chapter and the wider world again, and Cancer's also warned him about the rigours of the swamp and the desert and the challenges he may encounter on his way to Leo. And the sign of Cancer also sits at the nadir, or the lowest point of the astrological cycle. The nadir is about our roots. It's primordial, hence the swamp and the desert. All right, so now you've brought in the aspect of the square. So tell us a bit more about the square in astrological terms, since it's obviously quite an important... Thing. Yeah, because no matter where your sun is found uh, in the chart, it, it, there's likely to be a square aspect formed between some planets in your chart. I mean, not always, but most often. And those signs and houses of a chart wherein planets have formed this square aspect denote uh, a type of challenges the individual is likely to meet and hopefully grow through. So when you say a square, I know you've said 90 degrees, but just say... Just just explain a little bit more about okay. how a square aspect is formed. All right, we'll get into the sums of things. A circle is 360 degrees, right? And each sign represents 30 degrees of the zodiac circle. And so a 90-degree angle can be formed with planets, you know, and, and other signs. Because four signs is necessarily uh, configuring this equation, four times nine is or four times 90 is 360, they are known as quadruplicities because four signs are, you know, in the 90 degree. And the angles of the quadruplicities each make up what is known as a grand cross or a grand square. Now, these grand squares each have particular qualities, namely cardinal, fixed and mutable because of the signs involved which form them. For instance... Aries, Cancer, Libra and Capricorn are all signs which fall on the equinoxes and the solstices and so have cardinal qualities, meaning something in principle on which a thing hinges, e.g. Aries is the vernal equinox and Cancer is the summer solstice. There is something fundamental about these four signs and each in its way takes definite action. They will set things going, they're innovative and they work to an end and their faults may be those of restlessness. The signs of Taurus, Leo, Scorpio and Aquarius each fall in succession to a cardinal sign and therefore have fixed qualities, meaning resistance to change, implying stability, steadfastness, but a lack of volatility. I mean, they're known to be the cornerstones of support. Squares here are not so good at getting things going 
but will guard and conserve that which has been started and they may be depended upon to get things done. Their faults may be inertia, lack of imagination and adaptability. The signs of Gemini, Virgo, Sagittarius and Pisces each fall after a fixed sign and before the next cardinal sign and so have a mutable quality, a relationship between the two. The outstanding characteristic here is versatile adaptability and such people tend to act for others either in a self-seeking or a selfless way and are more varied than the other two types. I mean, their faults can be over-diffuseness and a lack of stability. So I imagine that you'd want to see what the mix is that you've got in your chart. Yeah, as we've already talked about yin and yang, you'd be, you know, disregarding where your sun is, there'll be all these other factors coming into play, which what makes it, you know, more interesting and intriguing and accurate at the end of the day in terms of finding out about yourself. You could be a water sign but still have a, a cardinal square from planets placed in cardinal signs. That's the planets placed in either Aries, Libra, um, Capricorn. And then would that bring, bring challenge to your life? Yes, of course it would. It'd be, bring a challenge in the ways in which I've just said, you know, um, you would find, you know, with squares, you do have to personally work it, work it out yourself. We'll talk about trines in the next one, but with squares, it's energies where you are personally challenged. You find that in this area, yes, you've got to work either to bring something about, even relationships. You might have a square to your second house, to your seventh house of relationships. And you're right, aren't you? Everybody has challenges in their lives. Oh, it's necessary. For but they growth. don't have to be major traumas. No, not necessarily at all. But I mean, you know, the thing is, the more you experience extremes, which again we'll go into later, the more full life experience you have. All right. So I look forward to hearing about trines next time. <laughs> Thank you, Marion. Thanks, Polly. You've been listening to the latest podcast in the series Follow the Sun. Look out for our next one where Marion will be taking us into the fifth sign of Leo. This is a story based on the sequence of the zodiac, so make sure you don't miss out by subscribing through your favourite podcast provider. Follow the Sun was written by Marion Mente. The podcast was produced and presented by me, Pommy Harmer, and this was a Black Pearl production. Black Pearl.